<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Broadcasting from Resistance Headquarters, relentlessly fighting back against the clown dictator and his regime of deplorables. Never give up, never surrender. This is the Bob Seska Show, presented by BubbleGenius.com. From our nation's capital, it is Wednesday, May 22, 2019, and this is the interview edition of the Bob Seska Show. My guest today should be more than familiar to anyone who listens to this podcast. It's the great Charles Johnson from LittleGreenFootballs.com. Not to be confused with alt-right weirdo Chuck C. Johnson. Charles, not Chuck, <laughs> owns and operates Little Green Footballs, but he's also an accomplished software engineer and guitarist, having performed and toured with legends such as Al Jarreau and Stanley Clark. In addition to talking music, we'll talk with Charles about impeachment, Fox News, the 2020 election, Robert Mueller, and so much more. If you like what you hear, by the way, please support this show by subscribing at bobseskashow.com. And now let's welcome back to the show my friend, Charles Johnson. The fan in my computer has started to make noise recently. Oh, okay, yeah, and of course you've got probably some sort of gigantic set of fans. Well, it's a Mac Pro, so yeah. Okay, it's cool. got a fan that you can hear when it starts to get going. <laughs> Charles Johnson has lots of fans, that's for sure. <laughs> that's Yeah, I've got yeah. a really big fan here. Yeah, but not a single one of them can take their top off. See, that's the problem. <laughs> you need to get yourself some fans that can at least, I'm kidding, of course. Yeah, those days are, are, are gone. <laughs> <laughs> did, you, I mean, did you have that kind of thing? Was that kind of your experience as you were touring with uh, Stanley Clark and Al Jarreau and all these guys? Uh, I mean, did you have that kind of rock star experience? You know, by the time... Stanley, by the time I was touring with Stanley and Al Jarreau, it was that that era was pretty much over. Yeah, really, <laughs> because you know AIDS came in and people were getting paranoid about uh, the whole uh, free sex thing. Yeah, and you're, and you're talking about w what era specifically, like you the know, '90s the or 80s, the '80s? Yeah, '80s and '90s. You know, when when people were starting to get uh, leery of that whole. Thing. Well, I get um, you know I can see uh, the '90s where people kind of cleaned up a little bit, but the '80s it seems like the '80s was just the party decade. Um, it was kind of yeah. I mean there was some, there was a lot of partying going on. Yeah. So <laughs> what can I tell you? You guys had to have had some groupies and people following you around and stuff like that. No. It was more that happened more in the earlier days, like when I was touring with George Duke. Oh the, wow. In the 70s. In the 70s. 70s. Wow. You know what? I've yeah. never actually asked you, how old a guy are you? I'm, I'm about a million. <laughs> <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what it feels like lately. But actually, I'm 66. 
You're, you got to be kidding me. You are 66. Yeah. I, for some reason, I was thinking, and I don't know why I was thinking this, because you were touring when I was like eight years old. So <laughs> I, I was always thinking that you were the same age as me, generally, maybe around 50, maybe between 50, 55 at the very most. But 66, yeah. how, does it, how does it feel to be a 66-year-old guy with all of these experiences behind you? I mean, with like a... Almost a renaissance man kind of uh, set of uh, of experiences and adventures throughout life. That's a that's an interesting question. Uh, <laughs> you know, some of it some of it's some of it is good to recall. Some of it isn't. You know, yeah. um, so, like a lot of the experiences I had in the music business, I wouldn't really call them terrific. Yeah, really. <laughs> I did have some really good ones, but I also had some really bad ones. So, I mean, was this what kind of experiences were bad? I mean, I you know I've had a little bit of teeny tiny experience. I had one toe in the music industry for a period of time where I was doing music videos. And well, that was more than enough time in the music industry because as screwed up as television and movies are, seems to me as if the music industry is like a thousand times more screwed up. Yeah, you kind of encounter a lot of shady characters. Um, <laughs> it's Especially when you start, it, start to get into it on the level where people are making real money from it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and for for example, I mean, I, uh, I was with a band called P*** for a while. Yeah. Which um, is one of those really great bands that just for some reason didn't get popular. Um, hmm, interesting. They had three records. Uh, mm -hmm. a Bobby Columbia of Earth, Wind, and Fire. <laughs> wow. Was the producer, actually. Not, not Earth, Wind, and Fire. Uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Oh, okay. Yeah, I always get those two mixed up. <laughs> uh, but uh, anyway, they, they, uh, they did three albums. And mm -hmm. for the third album, I had been playing with them and doing touring and that kind of stuff yeah uh, and i did uh the second album with them as as a side man i came in and you know they had already been doing tracks and i came in and added parts and then i kind of became part of the band yeah after that and uh we when we did the third album i collaborated with the two guy two main guys in the band mm -hmm. on on several songs for the record Wow. Uh, you know, I wrote uh, I wrote quite a bit of. In fact, one of the songs was pretty much entirely written by me with the lyrics by them. Um, so nice. Uh, you know, I mean, I had like I think there were three, maybe four songs on the record that I had uh, co-written. One of them didn't make it on the record, but what they did, <laughs> uh, they had made a deal with their publishing company mm -hmm. where they got a large advance on this record. Yeah. And the deal was that they were going to deliver to the publishing company several, you know, a, an album's worth of songs, mm -hmm. all written by them. But they had collaborated with me yeah. <laughs> and a couple of other people, too. Like uh, Kenny Loggins co-wrote one song with them. Uh, wow. So, you know, they were in a position where they they couldn't meet their deal with their publishing company. And they'd yeah. already gotten an advance on it. Oh, no. So what they tried to do was they tried to muscle me out of my publishing. <laughs> oh. They basically came to me one day and just said, you know, we really need you to, uh, you know, to give us the publishing on this. And remember, we're, you're giving, we're giving you a lot of exposure and, you know, you're going to get, you know, all kinds of opportunities from this yeah. and this kind of stuff. And by this point, you know, I'd been around the block a few times already and I yeah. knew bullshit when I heard it. <laughs> so... You know, it was really a, it was a, 
it turned into a big nightmare where we got lawyers. Yeah. And, <laughs> well, it seems anyway. like that happens so often, and it, it really all comes down to the publishing, right? Because that's where the real money is. Yeah. Right, exactly. That's where the money comes from, and uh, they had gotten in advance, so they, you know, they were kind of in a hole, and they, you know, and they made a stupid decision to co-write songs in spite of the fact that they got yeah. this publishing advance. Of course, there was a lot of cocaine flowing around then, so <laughs> that may have uh, it may have influenced their irrational decisions. Yeah, but, yeah. But this, the weird thing is that I I had considered these guys more than just band members they were like close personal friends right right up to that point and to see the way they just kind of turned on a dime and you know <laughs> tried to screw me out of something that i worked hard to do yeah that yeah. that's what i mean when i say some of the memories are not really great from the music <laughs> business well yeah it sounds like it but it sounds like it's fairly typical like it seems like every musician uh, goes through uh, some sort of battle over whether it's publishing or so, wh whether they get an yeah. even share of the profits for, for gigging and, and, and recording and so on. And yeah. But th in this case, it seems like that's the most rampant and egregious thing that anyone can experience. Writing music, right. you know, knowing that you'll get credit for this particular song or series of songs on a record, and then therefore you'll get royalties from ASCAP and BMI and all those guys for for the publishing and the real real money apart from what you get from the uh, the label right. apart you get what you get from touring this is kind of you know publishing is what you get in perpetuity for in some cases decades and decades and decades right yeah correct and it's yeah. it's really the, it's the only aspect of like songwriting that you can give away that right you can make bargains with and like because copyright is you know that's yours nobody mm -hmm. can take it from you <laughs> you know and in fact you don't even really have to file a copyright yeah. um but but for publishing it's negotiable right and so i mean i've 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 known so many musicians who worked with famous people who you know insisted that if they wrote a part of a of a song or something like that that they had to give if not all the publishing at least a large chunk of it mm -hmm. right. quincy jones is famous for this uh michael jackson did it all the time sure <laughs> you know, everybody who worked with michael jackson basically gave up their publishing to him yeah yeah and and you know in that case it's almost you know there's almost a reason to do it because there's so much you know additional money coming in from other sources when you work on an album like that that mm -hmm that you know you kind of have an incentive to do it right right but but with the guys you know i didn't have any incentive yeah yeah <laughs> to just give it to them because they wanted it you know anyway is this <laughs> is this something that i can include in the show because obviously we're already starting to chat here can i can i include it but bleep out or something like that uh i guess you could yeah maybe we can uh t yeah Make it about uh, an anonymous band that I worked with a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll do that. Not everybody is like that. I don't want to give yeah. you that impression. You know, I, a lot of, like George Duke, for example, uh, the big tune that I co-wrote with him was Reach For It. Mm -hmm. And that actually started as a jam in the studio. We wow. were just jamming. Um, and, you know, he actually gave... The other musicians in the band, it was myself, the bass player and the drummer, and Dugu Chancellor and Byron Miller, the 
you know, the publishing. He gave us uh, equal shares of the publishing on the tune. He didn't have to do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so, you know, not everybody's like that. Some people are decent, some aren't, you know. So uh, going back to what I was originally mentioning about you uh, when we first started chatting here is the fact that you are really very much a renaissance man. You have a wide spectrum of things that you do, everything, everything from uh, being a, a master on guitar all the way up to programming uh, for Little Green Footballs and keeping tabs on, on politics and so on. When you were uh, a touring musician, when you were a recording musician, how did you kill all of that spare time that you have in that, in well, that kind know, of situation? That's, that's, that's actually how I began uh, uh, learning about programming. Computers. Oh, really? Because uh, this is back in the, uh, let's see, when did this start? I think it was the late 70s or early 80s that uh, uh, I was working with um, with uh, uh, Al Jarreau. Mm -hmm. Wow. And he was not touring very much. So I had yeah. a lot of time at home. And one of the things I did just to, you know, spend some time, I bought a, a, an Atari computer. <laughs> and I bought it mainly to play games on, right? Yeah, yeah. Which one though? What you when you didn't buy this? You're not talking about the 2600. You're talking about like an actual desktop Atari. Yeah, machine, no, right? the 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 400 originally, right? And then the 800 later. But uh, but what it had, it had a, a cartridge system where you plug cartridges into the top of the thing. Oh yeah, I remember those. And and they had a lot of game cartridges, but they also had a basic language cartridge. Hmm. Interesting. And I went to, one day I just started fooling around with that and I, I kind of, I got into it because it was almost, in a way it's like music or sculpture or something. You know, mm -hmm. you build something and you can keep working on it and making it better. Yeah. And it really, you know, it's an attractive thing for creative people, I think. I know a lot of musicians who got into computers on one level or another yeah there's you know, something that's that's um i don't know how else to describe there's something that's constructive about it where you're you know it's almost like writing a screenplay where you're figuring out uh or a song for that matter just going back to your actual metaphor of this it's very much right. like music where you've got sort of a basic structure that maybe you jam and and you go through and you make a, a quick tape of that and then you're mm -hmm. building you're constantly building and revising and moving things around and and especially sure. now with things like pro tools and so on but even back then people would do a lot of uh, editing with razor blades and tape and so on and uh, and it's the same kind of process you're constantly refining and then with programming it seems to me as if you're always going back and solving little problems little conundrums along the way right yeah yeah that's right uh, and you know Man, now there's a dog barking outside. Is that your dog? Window. No, no. That's some dog outside. Somebody's walking it, I think. A random dog outside. Uh, somebody's walking it. They're going past now. <laughs> right. Just a loud dog. That's become like a, that's become a feature on my uh, Wednesday show. Whoever I'm talking to, there's always some sort of chaos happening behind it. I talked to Malcolm Nance a couple of weeks ago, and I think the second time I interviewed him, he was getting off an airplane and going to like a baggage claim and getting his rental car and everything all while we're talking on the on the <laughs> podcast so it's a lot of fun to get the the behind the scenes Malcolm Nat so but anyway well, okay i think the dog has gone gone away <laughs> <laughs> sounds good but anyway so we're talking about uh, programming and, and how you uh, made that segue from yeah. uh, you know from just doing it kind of in your spare time into something that became uh, uh, more of the central focus, right? You know, if I if I hadn't been uh, 
in a band that wasn't touring enough to keep me busy, <laughs> I probably never would have gotten into programming. But, it, wow. you know, I had months at a time where I wasn't doing much. You know, I was staying at home and you can't take other gigs because they want to tour on a moment's notice, you know, and yeah. you could lose the band. So anyway, it, uh, you know, it ended up being something that I kind of had an affinity for and I got deeper and deeper into it and learned machine language programming, assembly language, and... Um, you know, eventually got really good at it and ended up starting a company yeah. uh, to market utility software that I wrote. Hmm. So and, and so that was sort of your second chapter, right? You start out as a as a touring and recording musician, and then you move on to starting your own uh, uh, right. software company. It's, it's, I mean, I, I was still touring through all this. I mean, I actually had a, I got a. a, a, a a, a travel case made for for an Atari computer. Oh wow! That I actually brought on the road with me. Yeah. People thought I was nuts. <laughs> I yeah. probably was. Oh, they probably hadn't seen anything like that ever before. Is at least like in the early '80s, everyone was thinking, "Oh, computers are basically what we see in arcades, and then maybe the yeah. Atari Twenty Six Hundred, or I think in television existed at that point." But there were no laptop computers. This was like yeah. the size of a suitcase. You know? Oh my God! Yeah, <laughs> it had a giant disk drive in it you know one of those floppy disks. oh yeah yeah i mean my <laughs> first computer like that was a commodore 64 where i had the six inch uh, floppy disks that we used to right. just we used to pirate the hell out of them because if you had a friend who had a disk drive like the commodore 64 disk drive you could just do almost like uh like a tape to tape kind of thing like putting two uh boom boxes next to each right. other and recording one off the other and you could sure. do the same thing with a commodore 64 disk drive so the pirating of software was all over the place at that time that's what i remember oh yeah I yeah. did. I did my share of that until I formed a company, and then I was uh, very opposed to it. <laughs> That's the way it always happens. Like I was really like uh, around the year two thousand uh, when Napster was really popular. I did a uh, a cartoon about Metallica and their their ap approach toward now when they sued Napster, and I did a cartoon making fun of them. And uh, mm -hmm. so I became almost like a poster boy for Napster and for uh, music sharing and so on. And then, uh, and then I actually started making other cartoons in my uh, animation studio, and I suddenly became v pounding my fist on the, uh, the desk, going, "Don't steal my work!" And it's it's funny how <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you end up seeing both sides of that argument, you know? Yeah, you do if you get into it. I, and a lot of people have seen that, you know. But right. but nowadays, it's really um, the whole system. There's no, you know, I mean, it's really changed. Yeah. Everything is delivered over the internet now, and mm -hmm. you know, and it's a lot easier to sort of maintain your your intellectual property because you can force people to log in and yeah. sign in and all that kind of stuff before they can even use anything. So, well, even the music industry too. I mean, almost as much as uh, computer technology and the internet and so on, the, the music industry, and, and this actually, you can weave this into a discussion of Napster and everything else. The music industry has entirely changed. And I don't think oh, it's, yeah. I don't think it's necessarily landed yet. I don't think anyone really knows where the music industry is going from here because there are so oh, yeah. many platforms now, so many people making it on their own, independent music uh, and so on, alternative music, all seems to be in some sort of phantom zone right now where it's kind of everyone for themselves. Yeah, and it's um, it's become a system where you really don't... I mean, you can't really make money through recordings very yeah. much anymore because they're so easy to you know share around and whatever and oh, yeah. streaming services are just ripping off artists like ridiculously yeah well it's <laughs> almost know, giving, giving them tenth of a cent 
for a listen and that kind of stuff, or even less in some cases. So yeah. It's, well, it's, it's, really, it's, it's the exact opposite of when you came up through music, where uh, at that time, the albums and, and recordings drove oh, yeah. the money of the music industry, where touring Absolutely. was just a side thing that you would do just to promote your record. But now it's exactly the opposite, where the touring is where all the money is, and the records are the ones that get uh, uh, pirated and passed around and, and just thrown out there as almost its own little promotional value-added thing on the side. It's kind of yeah. strange how that is now, where the, the product is really the concert, and the what used to be the product is now the peripheral, you know, like a bonus feature that you get on the DVD right. or something. You know it's, what I mean? It's your exposure. I mean, that's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's all about exposure for, you know, recordings these days. And it, and it does do that job because pe if people like something, they'll share it. You know, it gets on YouTube, whatever. Yeah, yeah. But, but you're right. I mean, the, 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 it's been very stratified uh, mm -hmm. in recent years where the you've got the top pop stars who are, like, put out a record and it, instantly sells 10 million copies yeah. you know and 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 then you have everybody else and the and the the music business itself is all about those top pop stars now they don't take mm -hmm. chances on anybody <laughs> right you know back when back when i was coming up they used to take chances they used to let you do a few records that don't sit, make money yeah yeah <laughs> and you wouldn't lose your deal immediately you know right these days, these days they expect your first record to make money or see ya <laughs> yeah it's it's so sad when i think about it in those terms because uh you know there was such a a high water mark that occurred and it was a really really high water mark unless you actually witnessed it and experienced it it's really difficult to underscore how amazing the 70s were for music as far as music freedom and recording artists being allowed to kind of do whatever they want and, be, and, and oh, yeah. being able to develop an audience over two or three or maybe even upwards of five albums before yeah, there's an actually a big it hit. Was, it was a real free-for-all you know, yeah. in a lot of ways and nobody knew what was what was going to happen but you know you're right it was it was basically the rise of Napster that put an end to so much of that. <laughs> yes, yes and I feel partly responsible for <laughs> that myself <laughs> Yeah, again, I, you know, I, I, I tend to be so ambivalent about it. Like, some things I'm like, yeah, I, I don't steal that. And other things, I was like, well, it's not stealing, it's sharing. It's, it's so, it's so uh, I feel so conflicted about uh, the entire issue. Yeah, it is a, it's not an easy one, that's yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know, and, and one of the things that makes it difficult is just the, the simplicity of, <laughs> of, of you know sharing things yeah. it's really not, it's not hard at all these days right. you can share anything i mean what i can't share like music that i get off of apple music for example mm -hmm. you can't share that and they've they've got that pretty locked down yeah so well i figured out a way <laughs> i don't know i don't know if it's if it's actually legal or not but i can just drag uh, files out of iTunes and drop them right into my recording software, like Sound, like Sony SoundForge or something like that. Oh right, yeah, and then yeah. yeah, yeah, you can do it that way. You can also, I have a, I have a program that records sound that's playing on the computer. Oh yeah, so you, yeah, you can do it that way too. Yeah, so, I'm still running yeah. Windows Seven. You can do that in Windows Seven just using yeah. the uh, audio settings. It's, it's right, interesting it's, as well as refreshing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so how's everything at Little Green Footballs? You know, I, I think uh, people don't really realize. But you've built one hell of a gigantic community there. How many active users do you have at this point? Oh boy, I don't know. I haven't even looked 
in yeah. quite a while. You know, it's probably a few hundred. I mean, um, do you think that that part of the reason why you've been able to sustain Little Green Footballs for so long is because of the community you've built there? Because it's not just your blog. It's you have a kind of a community blog where anyone can start their own page, which I think is right. an ingenious way of constantly generating content. Yeah, it's um, that definitely helps. You know, yeah. uh, it really um it's gotten, you know, this is another situation where things have changed a lot for blogging, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and again, it was a, it was a, it was a technological innovation that kind of, uh, kicked things off into the new era. It was, it was Twitter and Facebook yeah. <laughs> that pretty much killed blogging. Right, right. And you, I you, mean, you're kind of like me though, right? Cause I, I see you much more often or being more present in terms of presenting your opinions about what's going on with Trump and the news and so on, uh, more in the format of Twitter rather than uh, right. writing blogs like kind of like you used to. Yeah, I mean, well, you you kind of have to. I mean, yeah. this one of the you can't ignore Facebook and Twitter. You know, I wish nope. I could. <laughs> I know, <laughs> me too. Me <laughs> but, too. Uh, I am kind of ignoring Facebook lately, though, because they've made a bunch of changes lately in the way their their APIs work Yeah, that make it really hard to automatically share articles that you post at a blog. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's a pain in the butt to try to get it to work because you have to jump through so many hoops to get this OAuth authorization working with them. And it's... Now, what, know, e what I, exactly is it that you're trying to do? Uh, for Just for the people who aren't uh, exactly sure well, what APIs you, are. When I write a blog post, for example, yeah. I, I used to have it set up where it would automatically, as soon as I posted it to the blog, it, oh, would, right, right. it would go share it on Twitter and on my Facebook page. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Uh, but lately, the Facebook page, is they've changed things, so it's... It actually, I haven't even checked it lately. But at when I when they first made the change, it would it just wouldn't work at all. There was and there was no way to make it work. They mm -hmm. just removed the the functionality. I don't know if they put back some of it now because a lot of people were screaming about it. <laughs> you know, yeah. developers were going, "What? What are you doing? You know, you <laughs> there's hundreds of thousands of people out here who use this feature. Yeah, I mean, it, just it's one of many things it. that people are screaming about with regard to Facebook. Have you been impacted by the uh, shifting oh, algorithms yeah. and the, uh, the, restrict, I, the, the throttling you know, of uh, people's traffic? I got to be honest, I've always hated Facebook. Yeah, <laughs> always. From the very first time I was on it, just even the look of it. Mm-hmm makes my skin crawl it's terrible looking it's like a, it is it's like it's like a you know an institutional building with some kind of weird you know <laughs> muted dark blue color and you know i always think i'm like in a hospital or something yeah and, and good luck changing your settings on facebook because it, oh, yeah. from what i can see that there are a million different ways to get to some form of settings for your own oh, presence yeah. on facebook and i can never and it, find what i'm looking for on facebook as far as like if i want to change my privacy settings or change passwords or something like that it's always a, a, a process of hunting for wherever the hell you do that and yeah and that's on purpose is that's it really i'm sure it's deliberate yeah because what they're trying to do is make it hard for you to you know to 
to oh, keep them man. out of your business. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, they want to get all up in your business. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's what Facebook is. That's what it's always been. And yeah. if they make it hard for you to you know, find, they, they can say, we put in this feature where you can stop us from seeing what advertisements you look at. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> sure. good luck trying to find it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, 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 and if you go searching for it and you don't find it in like five minutes, most people just give up. It always seems to me as if they're just fucking with us. Like Mark Zuckerberg treats Facebook as his own personal ant farm. And every once in a while, he grabs the ant farm and shakes it all up just to watch all the ants scurry all yeah. around and wonder what the fuck is going on. Yeah, he's he's playing at social engineering, you know. And, yeah. and Twitter is to a certain extent, Twitter does that too. They're not mm -hmm. quite as not quite as prying into everybody's business, but they you know, every time I hear Jack Dorsey talk about uh you know, healthy conversations and how they're going to use algorithms to enable mm -hmm. healthy conversations. I want to scream because that's just bullshit, man. Yeah. It's never going to work. Yeah. It, it is never going to work. And he thinks that that's a substitute for, you know, getting rid of bad elements, you know, <laughs> and because he doesn't want to take the risk of being seen as the bad guy. Yeah. I you know, know. who, yeah. who, the, the drill sergeant who stepped in and, and made things, you know, a different way. Yeah. But, but, but unless you do that, it will always be shit. And I, I know this from experience mm -hmm. <laughs> because little green footballs yeah. was shit like that at one point. And was this, I this had was to step in. Yeah, you had to step in and start doing it yourself, right? Because there probably wasn't a blogging platform that was acceptable to you, at least from looking at it from a back-end point of view, right? Well, I'm, to I'm talking about, uh, you know, when Little Green Footballs was known as a right-wing blog. For oh, right, right. And uh, there, there came a point where I realized that a lot of the people who were frequenting the blog were people I wouldn't want to be with in real life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, isn't that funny? And, yeah, and so, I mean, there was a time where I just started making it clear that I wasn't down with a lot of this social conservative bullshit that was, mm -hmm. that was starting to rise up even more powerfully. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of people bailed on me at that point. A lot of people just quit and, you know, left long ranting messages about why they were doing it. We used to call them the flounce messages. <laughs> But you know, it's uh, and then I had to I had to just block a lot of people. I had mm -hmm. to suspend accounts and you know because I realized I I needed to change the direction because it it had gotten too crazy. You know, and 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 it's funny because you know in my entire life as a musician and you know whatever, even growing up going to college, I was never a right winger. Yeah, <laughs> I was always a very liberal person politically and you know socially whatever and i never believed a lot of that crap mm -hmm. so it was you know what happened was i got i got kind of pulled into it <laughs> yeah after 9 11 mm -hmm. and uh and that that event really affected me you know emotionally yeah yeah and as it did, wanted, as it did with a lot of us i think a lot yeah. of us were impacted not only in terms of ptsd but i think there were some people who were uh very left-wing before 9-11 and and 9-11 radicalized them as far as yeah. uh war and retaliation for that attack right i think i think it did that to me for a while yeah uh you know i i know it did and you know part of it was 
was uh, anger, but also I wanted to understand more about it. And mm -hmm. one of the reasons I started getting into the blog more was to share information about radical Islam yeah. with people, just to kind of enlighten as many people as I could about what was going on, because, you know, they had just uh, killed a whole lot of people in, in New York, and I wanted mm -hmm. to understand what was going on more than just being angry about it. And that, that was actually kind of the impetus that got it started. But, you know, I mean, I had to face up to the fact that uh, it had turned into something that I didn't want it to be. <laughs> yeah. And, and there was a point where I just had to make a break, and I did. That was so brave of you, I think, because I, I would be so hesitant to do that, to make a such a radical shift out of fear of basically losing everything I had worked for. And I think there are a lot of people who are in the same boat. So it's it, yeah. it can't be highlighted enough how bold a move that was for you to say, you know what, this Tea Party thing is completely out of control. I never signed on for this. I don't want to be the platform for these ideas. Yeah. So bye-bye, right. no more. If you're interested in this shit, go somewhere else, right? That's kind of, uh, you know, in a way, that's been the story of my life. I've I've always done that when I when mm -hmm. I... If something is not going the way I think it really needs to, for whatever reason, I just kind of I don't I don't play along. <laughs> you know, yeah. I've always been kind of I guess a, a lone wolf in that way. But on the other hand, it really ends up where I don't have to. You know, I mean, I I do look back on some things with regret, but I can I can honestly say I didn't. You know, compromise principles when it really counted. And ultimately it worked because you were able to, I don't even think it, it was a matter of rebuilding. You were just able to kind of phase out one aspect of your audience as you were phasing in a new aspect of it. Is that how, by, kind of how it worked? Kind of, yeah, just by keeping on, you know, keeping, yeah. by still doing what I wanted to do and, and writing what I wanted to write and saying what I needed to say. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, there are still people out there who really hate me from those days too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, not only, not only left-wingers who hated what I was writing back then, but some of the people that got, that got suspended from the blog are like, uh, obsessively following everything I do these yeah. days. And still for years, years and years, they've been at it. <laughs> I know the feeling. Yeah. <laughs> I know those kind of people. I'm familiar with those kind of people. I unfortunately yeah. have, uh, have my own group of those kind of people. And you know, it's yeah. to me, you know, one of the many ways that I relate to you and your work, Charles, is the fact that, uh, that you are intellectually honest, that you stand by your ideas, that you're not changing your, uh, views on the world you're not changing uh your attitudes on certain issues based on what the popular thing is at that point in time and i always go back to when we first started communicating with each other on on twitter specifically uh during yeah. the entire snowden greenwald thing and right. and that was a case where um either even though we were both ensconced in liberal conversation on blogs and so on we kind of took an approach that was uh, counter to what a lot of liberals were saying at that point yeah. in time, and I think we we generated some enemies in that process on I our on our own did. side. Yeah, <laughs> and in fact, uh, some of the enemies I generated were people who were starting to think maybe I was okay after that that right wing episode, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but yeah, something about that whole thing just never smelled right to me, and it just mm -hmm. I couldn't I couldn't just be quiet about it, you yeah. know. I mean, it was. 
I made one comment to Glenn Greenwald and he blocked me instantly. <laughs> so, you know, because he's I so guess. brave and and he has such courage of his convictions that he's just got to block anyone who injects a little bit of truth and honesty into what he said. Yeah. And then he'll go and attack you, you know, from behind the block <laughs> periodically. The worst. <laughs> so Dan Bongino of him. That's a, that's yeah. another thing that Dan Bongino does. Uh, it's because he knows that if he does it, he'll get a whole lot of people to harass you. Exactly. That's, that's why he's doing it. Yeah, and, and you know, and, it, and it's a sleazy thing to do, really. I I think we may have talked about this on the podcast before, but. Uh, am I the only one kind of looking at what happened in 2013 with Snowden as sort of a testing ground for Russia as far as... Oh, no, as... you're not the only one. I've, uh, yeah, I've, oh, I've thank been God. thinking the same thing. It's really, it's kind of interesting to see that now, to yeah. look back on it. And, and to see the way Glenn Greenwald, for example, is now pretty much, you know, supporting the Fox News audience. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, he's been on... Tucker Carlson show over and over and over. This is mm. not just a guy who wants to appear to maybe change a few minds. He's he's supporting Tucker Carlson. He really is. Yeah. His core values are actually one value, and that one value is contrarianism. Whatever the Democrats are saying, he's going to say the opposite in the form of constantly, you know, shaking his finger and scolding them. Because yeah. uh, he is. And that's what a uh, bottom line, Glenn Greenwald is a professional scold. Yeah, he is, and yeah. and also a narcissist. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> which that, is a bad too. combination, you know, because most of his most of what he does is about self promotion. Really. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's it seems to me as if the Snowden thing, looking back with the context of everything that's happened with the Russian attack, I've been in fact calling it the Russian invasion more recently because it seems like that's what it is. It's an invasion of our national sovereignty. But the thing yeah. is that that I think version one maybe the the beta testing version of what happened with the 2016 election and forward through to this day uh kind of was you know a, a, kind of occurred with edward snowden like how much can we disrupt american politics just by getting this one guy to maybe steal some documents from the nsa and then uh and then you completely blow up uh, an entire summer of the Obama administration, completely sidetrack whatever agenda uh, Obama had lined up in lieu of having yeah. to defend the national security uh, uh, infrastructure of the United States. Seems really to me that was that was, a, yeah, this is the test. I think round. you're right, man. I think you got a good, a good uh, outlook on that. I think, I think there was some, uh, some influence there from yeah. the same people who eventually refined these techniques. I mean, mm -hmm. that what they did there was kind of old school espionage stuff. Yeah. You know, they they got a guy and they, you know, convinced him to turn and, uh, you know, <laughs> not Glenn Greenwald, I'm talking about Snowden here. Yeah. And and he did, you know, and and what they did is they found one of these libertarian types. You know, I, who knows how they found him. I mean, he did have an online presence all over the place, you yeah. know, and he and he was not a nice guy in a lot mm -hmm. of it and he you know they probably identified him one way or another and you know eventually he was convinced to turn wow. and you know i i really don't think 
that he ended up in Russia accidentally at no, all. I don't, no, I don't buy that for one second. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. That was all part of the plan. In fact, you know, there's maybe a theory there insofar as uh, maybe Edward Snowden started to do what he had planned to do with those uh, NSA documents, and then Russia came in and kind of co-opted him. Because what happened was he went from Hawaii, Booz Allen Hamilton on Oahu, over to Hong Kong. He fled to Hong Kong. Right. And after a period of time in Hong Kong, and all of this is well documented, whether it's in Citizen Four or the Snowden movie or what have you, he spends some time in Hong Kong, but ends up, at the end of his time in Hong Kong, at the Russian consulate in Hong Kong, where they're throwing Correct. a pizza yeah. pizza birthday party for him, only to then, after that, be shuttled to Moscow uh, by WikiLeaks lawyers. And yeah. then once he gets into uh, Russia, he's represented by a former FSB attorney, Anatoly Kucherena. And, and so it seems to me... That's like that with WikiLeaks involved, with people linked to Russian intelligence involved, ultimately with Vladimir Putin giving Snowden's asylum in Moscow. All of that crap just rings 2015, 2016, 2017, all the way up through through today. The same players are kind of involved then as they are now, with right. minus the Trump group, which is the Trump. I mean, Trump is kind Snowden of the new Snowden. Yeah, uh, those people are just a, a terrific weapon because yeah. what he did is. He gave them something that they could use to portray these systems as some kind of nefarious, you know, deep uh, state, wide yeah. deep state yeah. operation that was learning everything about everybody. Mm-hmm. And it really was not that. And, no. it, you know, I, I mean, yes, I do think there were some areas where the NSA oversteps their bounds. Sure. But, but <laughs> you know, in general, this that whole system was designed with a lot of transparency and a lot of oversight. Yeah. And you know, people just don't understand that and I understand the the kind of knee-jerk reaction to being spied on. Yeah. But but unfortunately, you know, the people who exploited that know that most people will never bother to learn everything about what they're being upset about. <laughs> yes. In fact, that's the social media internet aspect of the Snowden situation. Like, we have the social media internet aspect of the Russian attack now, but going back to 2013, th- what the internet did is it kind of perpetuated this frustrating level of American ignorance where even members of Congress were entirely misrepresenting what NSA can and can't do, what the FISA courts can and can't do. Oh, by the way, yet another crossover element of the Snowden situation to today, FISA somehow being involved and demonized. Um, That was something that was happening in 2013 too. So you have... All of these nuances and all of these myriad details, I mean, just, it it would take someone years, almost to the point of becoming a scholar in national security, especially foreign intelligence, counterintelligence, Mm -hmm. to understand all of those finer points of how the operation works. And people, even reporters who were reporting hard news about what was going on, didn't have a full grasp in terms of all of those details. And so it was very easy for people like Glenn Greenwald to play a shell game and to uh, kind of mix things around in a way that presented uh, information suiting his agenda. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the things that you and I both hammered on constantly. Yeah. The misleading nature of so much of what he was writing back Mm -hmm. then. I mean, he was, 
you'd literally have to read like 27 paragraphs <laughs> in to find the part <laughs> yeah. that says, hey, but by the way, none of this ever happened in reality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? But and, it then, was, and then today he has, he's got the nerve to sit there in Rio and just with his monkeys and his dogs and just talk about yeah. how bad the American press is and how misleading the American press is. And, yeah. and he is one of the most egregious uh, violators of the public trust when it comes to the press because what we were observing coming out of unfortunately the Guardian at that time and the Guardian's leadership at that time and since then the the leadership at the Guardian uh, has left they're no longer yeah, there um, right. Glenn Greenwald's no longer there uh, they've all moved on so the Guardian's kind of a different entity now so I don't want to categorically bash the Guardian but the reporting that was going on there was just a great egregiously bad i mean oh, i yeah. was shocked and we were exchanging notes stuff. yeah i mean <laughs> i always go back to that alan Rusbridger uh piece where he i, I guess that's his last rush Russ, Russ i think that was his I, last name yeah where he put, publishes this this whole piece about snowden and greenwald and all of it and then somewhere in like paragraph 30 goes oh yeah by the way the gchq stopped by and they destroyed all of our snowden documents and the computers they were held on and, <laughs> yeah, and here's right. here are some pictures of our macbooks after they were bashed up by the GCHQ, which is the British NSA. And as if, first of all, the GCHQ has a goon squad, which is just kind of insane to imagine that. But at the same time, the pictures that he presented, and again, I feel like a broken record with this all the time because I'm going, look, look, you see, don't you people see that, uh, you know, the, the pictures that he said were MacBook parts that were bashed up by the GCHQ. Turned out there was like from some Dell computer from 1994 or something like yeah, that. That's, it was a PC motherboard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah with <laughs> With all kind, yeah, with all kinds of PC peripheral devices and things that you could see in there too, and it was obvious to anyone who had seen inside of a computer that these were not MacBook parts, and yeah, and they never really did a formal correction on that, did they? Didn't they eventually publish some pictures that were of a Mac? Oh, I think you they know what? did. I remember some pictures that that were from from a MacBook. I think. Yeah, well, what they did, from what I recall, you might be right on that, but I also remember um, a video that was floating around, maybe five or six months after that piece dropped, which is also suspicious. That oh, we've now suddenly look at this video we have, and it was a video of someone with like a circular saw sawing through a MacBook or something like that. Right. Or right. using like a Dremel tool and Dremeling a. Uh, you know, a, a hard drive or something like that. And again, it was so l- long after the fact that you had to wonder, did they just rig this up to cover their own asses or something like that? I mean, there was no reason yeah. for me to take that at face value. I had seen enough chicanery at that point. I'm like, well, yeah, whatever, guys. If you didn't present this the day after you wrote that article, uh, with the urgency and the degree of attention that you were receiving because of all of this, then, it, you know, it's it, we can't yeah. take it at face value. Yeah, that was that was a bad episode. You know, it <laughs> yeah, really was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but you're right. The Guardian has actually improved quite a bit mm-hmm. since since those days. You yeah. know, well, even Luke Harding's reporting I've actually found quite reliable. And Luke Harding was one of the guys who was, you know, on board the Snowden train. In fact, the Oliver Stone Snowden movie is based on Luke Harding's book. And Luke Harding has been doing a lot of reporting on the Russia story, and it has been confirmed by other uh, news outlets. So it's so I have a little more faith in in his ability. But at the time. Luke Harding was one of the guys. Remember, he said he was. Uh, he posted some article about how the NSA was deleting his book as he was oh, writing yeah. it. As he was writing it, that was great. 
yeah, it, was that like was, a, it was probably his delete button was stuck or something like that, which was what was yeah, really some, going on. But some Cheeto crumbs got stuck in the keyboard. Yeah, exactly. Know. And this and this guy's work became the basis for that Oliver Stone movie. But you but know. you know, I also discovered it's possible for one of his coworkers to be pranking him too. You know, <laughs> with, if, it, if you have a that. USB keyboard that gets paired, you know, a Bluetooth keyboard that gets paired to that computer. <laughs> You could be like in in a desk, two desks away, typing this stuff and deleting it. Yeah, (laughs) that's such a great explanation. I love that one the most. In fact, Uh, not just his key stuck down or something like that, or some just some sort of glitch was this. Someone was actually either knowingly or unknowingly screwing with his computer as he was writing. Just the idea that the NSA is going to you know break into your computer and then and then delete things as you're typing. (laughs) Yes, which is so subtle and inconspicuous. <laughs> yeah, sure, that's how the NSA works. You yeah, know I mean, yeah. it's like cartoonish, really. Right, right. Well, speaking of cartoonish, did you see Trump's news conference this morning? Uh, he was. I didn't actually see it, but I, you know, I've been reading about it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, in addition to whining and denying and and playing his whole "Who Me" routine, which is getting really, really old at this, point. I can't believe anyone, his supporters or enemies alike aren't entirely sick and tired of just, oh, who, me? Who, I didn't do anything. Uh, uh, the, the guilt is so obvious at this yeah. point. Oh, my God. You know, it's, if, if you had a friend who was talking like this, who was accused <laughs> of something, you wouldn't believe him for yeah. a second. You know, it's, I don't know why people are willing to cut him a break. He's a... Yeah. It's so obvious because, I mean, what he did is he staged this whole thing where he was going to, he got Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi to come up to the Oval to talk about infrastructure, and then he deliberately walked out of it, and then directly out into the Rose Garden, where they had already set up his podium. And a and a piece of poster board that said all of the statistics from the Mueller report, like right, yeah. the, the number of witnesses who were interviewed, the cost of the report, everything was all set up as if it was. And and if anyone is looking at that, going, oh well, the explanation is actually how it happened. Well, you're out to lunch because that's not he he meant for. Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer to show up so he could walk out on them and make a big fucking deal over, uh, you know, no collusion or whatever else he's screaming. He's literally running the the government as if it were some kind of, you know, preschool with him as the only student. Yeah. Well, what happens (laughs) is, I mean, if you end up with the CEO president, you know, everyone who's been screaming for the last two decades about how we need uh, someone who runs a business to come in and run the country like they're running a business. Well, here's the consequence of that. What you end up having is a CEO president who's using all the levers of the executive branch of government in order to enrich himself and to help himself rather than to be a steward of democracy and a steward of, uh, of good government and legislation and so on right yeah so he's, and he's not a normal ceo either he this is a ceo's you know mob connected yeah, exactly he's completely <laughs> corrupt yeah yeah and his whole family is just as corrupt i mean right. literally I, I, another thing that amazes me lately is you know people are going hey Don Jr. just retweeted a white nationalist, Stefan Molyneux. And I'm going, haven't you been paying attention? And the guy has been openly associating with white nationalists for years now. I mean, it's been in the news. 
how can you be surprised by this at this point? You yeah. know, this is what they do. This is who they are. Earlier today, you tweeted, uh, one of these days, Trump is going to have a major breakdown of some kind in public. And it's it's <laughs> yeah. going to be epic. All of the bad craziness we've seen so far is just a warm up. I couldn't agree with you more. And you know what? That's why I watch his rallies. That's why I watch these <laughs> press conferences, because I'm either waiting for the stroke or I'm waiting for him to just yeah. go nuts and have that major breakdown you're talking for about. For that moment when he, you know, strips off all his clothes. And yeah. Yeah. Starts bab- babbling about <laughs> lizard people or something, you know, just <laughs> humping one of the columns in the colonnade next to the rose garden or something obnoxious like that. Yeah, I'm just waiting. For, I mean, Patton Oswald always talks about. It. I'm just waiting for Trump to take his dick out at any point in time. That's going to. He's just going to take it out, and that's going to be. Uh, yeah. it's, good luck uh, watching Lou Dobbs that night. Well, the president has a mighty fine penis, and we just got to see it today because he's a true American. <laughs> oh. This is a this penis is 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 a penis that rules countries. And that is and, that is America's <laughs> penis right there, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, but you, actually, this morning we we almost got it. We almost got the 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 meltdown today or the stroke. And he had more trouble with his mouth again. Yeah, that's been happening a lot lately. Yeah, more, and increasingly. And I'm seeing the the reaction more and more become. Oh, this is a consequence of drugs, unless a consequence of some sort of uh, physical episode that he's ha- that's happening just naturally, or his teeth, or something like that. You know, people are going, "Oh, oh, I see it now. I, I used to use, you know, uh, cocaine or whatever. You know, so this is yeah. he's having a reaction to some sort of cognitive enhancer here, whether it's it, Adderall or Provigil or what have you. It looks like that. I mean, it's possible. It's also, you know, I mean, the guy is. He's getting up there in years, and yeah. you know, I think his mind is coming apart slowly. I mean, it, really, if you go back and listen to him 10, 20 years ago, listen to recordings of him. Yeah. He didn't sound this insane. Right. <laughs> he, he really didn't. I mean, he still was a jerk and an asshole, but... <laughs> well, I mean, this, he, is why, this is why not just anyone can run for president or be president, because you have to have an inhuman level of, of physical and emotional stamina that while Trump talks about his amazing stamina, I don't think he really has. I don't think he's really cut out to to only sleep four hours a night and eat nothing but hamburgers right. and to be constantly on an up and down roller coaster, whether it's, you know, he's popping whatever before he does these rallies and whatever before he does these press yeah. conferences. And that's got to mess with him physically. So I just... I look at him and I go, and this is not out of some morbid curiosity necessarily, or maybe a little bit of it is. But at the same time, I feel like um, he can't continue like this as a healthy person or as a quote-unquote healthy person uh, yeah. with the way he abuses himself. And and you can see that the guy is under enormous stress. I mean, when he, when he gets on Twitter at, at 6 a.m. and yeah. posts, posts 14 tweets in a row ranting about witch hunt and you know no collusion and all that stuff Mm -hmm. he's he's i mean he's in it right now he's living in hell yeah um which is where he belongs by the way (laughs) absolutely uh there's no doubt about that and and i hope he gets there i i hope at some point soon and i hope it's a living hell i hope it's one of these things where you know much like uh well there are lots of people in in history who have lived on in infamy where no one wants to be associated with their names anymore. And I hope Donald right. Trump is one of those people moving forward. The people just don't, the name Trump just becomes like the name Hitler or the name Mussolini. And we just say, oh, or Nixon, you know, it's yeah. like, we don't want, 
want to be attached to this name, this brand anymore. And I hope that's what. So how do we get how do we get these Democrats to start you know finding their spines again? Yeah, I was just going to ask you that. Like, (laughs) why do you think the Democrats are so terrified of impeachment at this point? I'm just saying they're starting to come around. I don't want to completely indict them on this front, but there are a few Democrats who are still. I keep comparing them to like Barney Fife in a haunted house. They're just. Like quivering yeah. bowls of jello, and they don't know what to do next. Like, oh my God, we never anticipated that Trump was actually going to, you know, break the law. Yeah, I mean, you know, they they probably have a point that it, you the Senate won't convict. Yeah, they probably won't. I no. mean, even even if you know they have hearings and everything, and the whole impeachment proceeding takes place, and all the information is put out in front, there are still going to be. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to see all the Republicans of the Senate refuse to to convict anyway, even yeah. even when they know, because they are they're like pigs in shit right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. they're they're enjoying this power so much, and it's it, it's it's got them by the by the nads, really. Yeah, and, and even though and they, they're even, not gonna they're not gonna give it up willingly, right? And even though they are not winning. They feel like they are winning. And that's I think that's all that matters. That's what gets yeah. telegraphed to their voters. And if their voters feel like that their leaders are winning, if voters feel like their uh, you know their messiahs are accomplishing what they need to accomplish as far as owning the libs, then well, then they're happy about that. Well, one one way that they are winning is they're installing hundreds of federal judges. Yeah at the behest of the Federalist Society, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, extremely far-right organization that has been working for years on building the the systems to put these people in place. And these are lifetime appointments. So, you know, they are winning in some ways. And and the longer Trump is allowed to just keep doing what he does, the worse it's going to get because every day they're pushing more of these judges into office. So how do we get the Democrats? And I'm just talking about voters now. How do we, because really if, if democratic voters actually voted and had the same level of enthusiasm, every election, the Democrats would basically control politics and the Republicans as they're, I, I think, think intended right. to be, yeah. the Republicans would be relegated just being the opposite, the permanent opposition party. And that to me, that's the permanent state of things. In fact, David Frum and agrees that that should be the permanent, Permanent state of things where the Democrats govern and the Republicans are over on the side, kind of making sure things don't get too out of hand. But they're just, you know, the permanent opposition party and doing what an opposition party does. So Man, that's that would be paradise, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, how do we get to that point? Because it seems like we just the Democrats are plagued by this. Oh, don't hit me. Don't punch me too hard. I, I don't know yeah. if I can take the punching. And, uh, yeah, and they that's end up, the Democrat Party. And then the, and yeah. then the, the, the base is too lackadaisical about their their mm-hmm. responsibility to vote. You know, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, one way to do it would be to do what some countries do and require voting. Yeah, that's a great idea. <laughs> you know, and I, I do think that, I mean, if we can require jury duty mm-hmm. in order to vote, <laughs> maybe maybe we should also require voting. Well, for God's sake, we had the draft for how many decades, you know, yeah. where it was unpopular, of course, but at the same time, it was still a draft where the government could say, not just, oh, on Tuesday, you have to go down and cast a ballot. They were saying, right. oh, on Tuesday, you have to go to your draft board, and then you have to be sent to Vietnam and murdered by, right. you know, so on. And, and so, obviously, the, pro- the problem of uh, mandatory vote 
voting is not nearly as severe as uh, as some other things that have been uh, compulsory in this country. Yeah, requiring people to spend a few hours on one day yeah. of a year, you know, of, uh, maybe even just every four years. You mm-hmm. know? <laughs> I mean, that's that's not quite like being forced to go into the military for four years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I think if there's one positive side effect out of what happened in 2016 is that I think a lot of Democrats are beginning to realize what happens when they either stay home or when they vote for a third party or when they just allow someone who's quite clearly a despot to rise to power just because they're not particularly enthused about their Democratic nominee. You know what I mean? It's uh, there's a hard lesson that I think is going to be learned, or at least I'm hoping is going to be learned out of this, so we don't repeat the same mistake with Susan you know, Sarandon th- and all these others. Yeah, these contrarians. I think part of the problem, honestly, is also that um, you know, bad people with bad aims, yeah, will spend all their time trying to make those aims come true. Yeah. Whereas people, you know, like a lot of liberals want to live their lives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they don't they don't want to work at politics yeah. all the time. But but these right-wing groups are constantly working at this. Yeah. You know, and most people aren't aren't even aware of of the of what they're doing, but it's 24/7 with this with these people. Mm-hmm. Are you so, uh are you as frustrated with Robert Mueller as I am? Uh yeah. <laughs> I think I probably am because uh, you know um, and for one thing, he should have been out there after releasing the report, yep. you know, backing it up and talking mm-hmm. about it. Yeah. And I don't understand why he hasn't been. It, it's, it's, um, there's something odd about the whole thing. <laughs> yes, yes. And you know what? I have several theories along these lines. Everything from kind of the remote possibility that maybe there's just something physically wrong with Robert Mueller, that making a public appearance mm, is possible. going to somehow embarrass him. Maybe he's not, because he's he is getting up there too. And, and yeah. you know, I, I don't know. He's had uh, health problems in the past. I think he had prostate cancer there for a while. And, uh, mm-hmm. and so everything from that all the way to uh, the Sarah Kenzior thing, which is to say that uh, Robert Mueller is compromised. I'm not going to go that far by any stretch, but I do think that he is shirking his duty uh, at this point as someone who has has been our Elliot Ness in this, but is now not or now is refusing to rise to the occasion after his report has dropped. And he's yeah. left so much ambiguity in there. One of the most frustrating things has been what's happened in the past 24 hours, which is news coming out saying that Robert Mueller is concerned about looking political. And so therefore, his testimony in Congress should be behind closed doors. And right. I, I figure, you know, this guy left the uh, ramifications of his report up to Congress. He handed this report off to Congress, especially the obstruction charges. And so now he's complaining about uh, his report looking too political. He gave this to Congress. He made this. If there is a political element to this, he made this political, right, by leaving this up to Congress. Well, he's... He's never been like a real public kind of person, has he? I mean, it's it's not. He's never been in the public eye a lot. Well, he has, so, but he has testified on many occasions, and yeah. I think he's held some press conferences, especially after because he was uh, FBI director on nine eleven. Right, but not but not in in situations where he's going to get attacked and raked over the coals by yeah. Fox News. You know, I mean, I think that's true. Part of it may also just be not wanting to go through all that, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because anybody who testifies right now in this matter is going to be, 
you know, I mean, it's going to be a feeding frenzy. Yeah. But it seems like he should know. Uh, he should know better than that. That yeah. regardless of what he does, Fox News is going to attack him. And, and sometimes taking a stand with regard to, you know, having the courage of your convictions and saying, this is a report, oh, yeah. this is on the level. And, you know, but they, oh, I, would, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that as, as an excuse for him. Yeah. I don't think that's a reason for him not to do it. But I think maybe that's part of what he's calculating, you yeah. know, that he just doesn't want to go through all that crap. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in a way, I can't blame him. But on, in another way, it's his duty. He needs to. <laughs> right, right. Well, um, do you believe the uh, the pundits who suggest Trump wants uh, wants this impeachment fight? Do you think that uh, no. Trump is looking for a battle along these lines, no. or that he's terrified of it? No, I I don't. I think he's terrified. Yeah, me think too. He, I think he does not want an impeachment. I think that would be, I mean, for him, his whole narcissistic, self glorifying fantasy depends on being the guy who was the best president ever. You know, and <laughs> impeachment kind of throws a little monkey wrench into that. <laughs> yeah, that's such a good point. Like, and there's this conventional wisdom growing that, you know, and I think this is one of the reasons why the Democrats are afraid of taking him on with an impeachment uh, proceeding is that, oh, he really, he wants this battle. He's looking for it so he can say fake news and he can say, look at crazy Nancy or crying Chuck or whatever. And this is what, this is the kind of thing he does. But I, I tend to disagree with that. I think when the shit really hits the fan, Donald Trump ultimately is a coward. Like, he's been talking a lot about treason lately. Now, if he actually mm-hmm. saw real treason surrounding him, he would take action. He's the commander-in-chief. He's the president of the United States. If he sees some sort of uh, egregious laws being violated, rising to the level of treason, then he would pursue that. But I don't get the sense that he is because he's too afraid of maybe blowback or maybe it not showing what he claims is there and then him getting, you know, but I, I don't know that that's necessarily stopped him in the past. But regardless, he's not willing to go that extra step, or at least to this point, he hasn't gone that far. Is well, that- I think you're right. I think he's yeah. basically a coward, like most bullies are. Yeah, you know, and and it doesn't make them any less powerful as bullies, mm-hmm. but it explains a lot of what they do. You know, and, and I think Trump is a coward. I think he's afraid of dealing with these consequences. Yeah, he had some fantasy that he would come into office and everybody would love him. I mean, he still says <laughs> every once in a while, "Your favorite president." Your favorite he talks president. about himself yeah. like that. Yeah. You know, this is a guy who needs everyone to love him. Yeah. But at the same time, pushes everybody away. I mean, he's a mixed up dude. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> a yeah. Seriously I mean, mixed up dude. Beyond everything else, he is just a weirdo. I mean, yeah. I, I have seen few people. I mean, there are a lot of iconoclasts out there who are just so bizarre and off the beaten path in terms of their behavior and how they carry themselves. I mean, everything that Donald Trump is, everything that he says, even his his appearance, especially his appearance, are so strange. And even people like Jim Comey are like, baffled when they see him in person like what is this what's going on with his hair why do his eyes look like that what's why is his tie too long why do his suits i mean he's a billionaire why do his suits not fit him well he's not a billionaire by the way uh you know that could be part of the problem he's he's going to joseph a bank and buying things off the rack or something like that i don't know or nordstrom or something because it's amazing with all with all of his downturns and losing close to a billion dollars yeah in the 90s yeah. I mean, how does he manage to live the way he does despite that? I mean, it's really, 
it's quite a mystery to me. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> he's just figured it out that perception is reality. And if he can keep just hammering the same points over and over again, I'm the greatest. This is the worst uh, scandal in the history of uh, of American politics, of the American pre- presidential harassment. He can say all these things over and over again, and people legitimately will start to believe him because I think he understands that uh, as president of the United States, people believe their president. And that's yeah. how that's why George W. Bush was able to get away with uh, with no WMDs. This is why uh, they were able to get away with uh, torture. And this is why uh, Donald Trump has been able to get away with a thousand things every single day. You know? I'll tell you, I mean, I think if he can lay claim to one being the best at one thing, it's probably the best con man in history. Yeah, he is better than anyone else at turning his own pile of shit into, you know, a 100-story-tall, gold-plated building. I mean, that's what yeah, basically he, he's, he's doing. He's a master con man. He really yeah, is. He's, yeah. he's, in, he's a master of the art of the con. Yeah. <laughs> and he's, he's really good at it, obviously. He's the president. <laughs> right, right. And despite being a birther. I mean, it still blows my mind. I know, I know. <laughs> we, have a, we have a president who was a birther. Yeah. Good God. Well, yeah, and again, with the economy the way it is, I think it's artificially propping him up. If it wasn't for what I think every fair-minded person believes is still the Obama economy keeping him afloat, if it wasn't right. for that, his approval numbers would be in the uh, uh, probably the mid-20s at this point. It's just people are, are really happy with uh, with jobs and so on. Uh, yeah, miscrediting yeah. it, but still, they, they seem to be... Uh, uh, okay, contented enough to give him a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, even though they probably shouldn't. Yeah, you know, part of it is that economies take a long time to turn around. They're like battleships. Yeah. You know? yeah. And and what he's doing is going to end up with seriously negative effects on the economy. Yep. I, everyone who understands how this all works says this you know mm-hmm. it's not just me i'm i'm an ignorant know nothing about the economy to be honest but <laughs> but you know i can read what other people have to say and sure. i know i know that the actions he's taking are going to end up in a in a real downturn eventually yeah and yeah. you know and the problem is because it takes so long for these effects to be noticed it could be you know it's the last month of his of his term in office that this happens yeah <laughs> you know so yeah, you know, I hope like it, it like it was with George Bush. You know? Yeah, I mean, he, some reason he went that, through two whole terms destroying the economy before it got bad enough. Right, and then <laughs> it happened at the worst possible time when the, and John McCain's like, "God damn you, George W. Bush! Why did you do this to me?" Yeah. Uh, but speaking of uh, campaigns, uh, are you keeping track of the Democratic presidential candidates, uh, or, or do you think oh, it's yeah. too soon? Yeah, I'm, I am. You know, I mean, not really following it or believing much in the way of polls right now but um you know i mean i have some people that i like better than others i yeah. like elizabeth warren a lot yeah me I have too. to be honest yep. and um not that crazy about pete Buttigieg. yeah interesting what what uh, what's your skepticism with regard to uh mayor pete uh, um just seems a little bit uh, uh, milk toasty. <laughs> yeah, you know, not like not really. For you know, I didn't really and like that he went on Fox News. I really didn't. I I think that's a bad look for Democrats to do that now. Yeah, and I I'd prefer. I know you said that you didn't really see anything wrong with it, but I think I disagree with you on that because, you know, for me. I see Fox News as a wholly malevolent force in the United States right yeah. now. Yeah, well, I don't disagree with you on that. And 
I really what would what I think would be more effective would be if the Democratic candidates all kept a united front and mm-hmm. said, "Nope, we're not going to deal with Fox News." But when when one or two of them go on and do it and pretend like it's some normal thing, you know, it destroys that whole <laughs> that whole impression because then people can say, "Well, if it's so malevolent." How come Mayor Pete went on there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know what? I, I respect that point of view, and I understand that point of view. And in some ways, I agree with it. My only concern is that um, there needs to be some sort of avenue that we can constantly exploit to be able to uh, uh, crack that nut, to be able to get into that bubble and uh, and turn some heads. Because yeah. I think, you know, if we don't at least endeavor to try to change some minds, because even though they, they are Fox News viewers and they are what we think they are, there are a few who just do not know any better. Oh, it's the news. Let's just watch the news. And so yeah, that's what I they're doing. you're right. Yeah, and at the same time, though, it's not the news. We know that even the hard news reporting on Fox News is chosen to pursue a certain agenda oh, um, yeah. where maybe the, the the actual details of a story itself aren't necessarily spun to be uh, pro-Trump or pro-conservative, but the actual choice of that news story uh, oh, yeah. suits an agenda. So oh, everything about it really is yeah. designed to be to for, you know, forward the right wing agenda, including the people like Shep Smith who are, who are presenting a liberal sort of viewpoint, you know. Yeah, yeah. I th- I think he's the beard. He's he's what did, gives the rest <laughs> of it credibility. Yeah. Know? Well, I'm glad he's, it's him and not someone like Juan Williams or one of the other tomato cans as they used to call them uh, on right. Fox News that just are there just so they can be the Washington generals to like uh, Jesse Waters' Harlem Globetrotters. You know what I mean? Like right. they're yeah, there yeah. just to take the fall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's really pretty. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I. Maybe there are a few people who might be reached, but I, mm-hmm. I'm not sure that that's going to happen by going on Fox News yeah. just because everything you do. I mean, what happened was immediately after after Mayor Pete went on there, yeah. <laughs> you know, Tucker Carlson attacked him and that's true. Sean Hannity attacked him. And it was like they, they didn't even blink at it. You know, yeah. he gave yeah. they gave him no credibility for doing it and they never will. What yeah. they're going to do is they're going to take that appearance and spin it. To just keep their audience thoroughly brainwashed. Oh yeah, yeah. What they're going to do is they're gonna, and if they haven't already, they're going to take clips out of context and they're going to sure. selectively edit them like they always do, and it's going to be uh, extraordinarily frustrating along those lines. And you know, I, uh, unlike you, I think to a certain extent, I haven't really jumped in feet first with following the uh, the Democratic candidates yet, mainly because I, I feel like it's so early and and we were through this meat grinder back in 2008 and then again in 2016 where it was this protracted and excruciating democratic uh, shovel fight and yeah. and it gets so uh, frustrating after a while and gets so interminable after a while that you just go oh my god make it stop and so i haven't really uh, j- jumped in yet and and in fact on some of my dar- during some of my darkest hours I go, you know what? I don't care who it is at this point. I just want the election to happen, and I want to see this guy defeated. Uh, at the same time, I'm so um, 
I so skeptical about the veracity of the election that's coming up because of the Russian attack, which is not being mitigated by the commander in chief. Um, oh yeah, he's you know, doing nothing about it. He's yeah. literally just sitting back and and you know just doing nothing on purpose because right. he thinks they're going to help him again. Yeah, it's really obvious. And this is a whole new roadblock set up with Russia on top of all of the systemic problems that we have now with elections, whether it's lines that are just naturally too long or or outright voter suppression, which is rampant right. across the country. Gerrymandering and whatever. Yeah, you know, all the rest of it. It's just, it's so, uh, it's so discouraging and, and makes me, it, it's really kind of, uh, I don't know, s- stimulates my Gen X cynicism. You know, like, oh, I don't know. This just seems yeah. like it's not going to be on the level. So whatever, just I mean, get get someone in there now and let's get this over with. <laughs> Let's rip the band off. I mean, honestly, off. I think I think one thing that might make it a little bit better this next time around is just that Trump is so horrible. Yeah. <laughs> that anyone anyone who has any kind of liberal views at all knows that this guy should not be president, and oh, yeah. I think he's he's going to pull a lot of people out who might have otherwise stayed home if things weren't so bad. Yeah. Well, he always makes things worse for himself, and now that he's completely untethered from any you know wise old men in the White House, now he that he's just they're just letting Trump be Trump. He is yeah. going to continue to undermine himself, and he's stepping right into his own propeller with this impeachment process because yeah. he's giving them more fuel every time he steps in front of a microphone or tweets or denies another subpoena. He's tempting more and more, like one more gigantic step toward uh, an impeachment process. And, yeah. and uh, I just saw yesterday that he, he's now decided he doesn't need a press secretary. <laughs> And no, he doesn't need anyone except him. He doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't need. He doesn't need a you know a chief advisor. He doesn't need a, anybody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's all about Trump. You know, he doesn't need any the rest of the government. He puts people in charge of agencies who want to destroy them and say so publicly. <laughs> yeah. And or people like Ben, Car- you know Ben. Ben Carson, yeah. Ben Carson, who 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 are just idiots and don't give a shit and, and don't even study what they're supposed to do. Yeah, you know, I was just going to ask you about that. Like, what the hell happened oh with Ben Carson yesterday? Uh, you know, there's something really wrong with that guy. I well, mean, he's he, completely incompetent. I mean, I don't know how this guy was sticking his fingers into people's brain cavities and and go, coming out looking golden and looking heroic out of that. Because I guess I guess he's just a savant. Like he's really good at that thing, and then everything else is just confusion and blurriness to him. Or it could be could be you know. Onset of dementia or Alzheimer's it or something, be. too. Well, I mean, because literally the way he looked at that hearing was... <laughs> <laughs> he just man, didn't care, yeah. He was like a confused old guy who just, you know, couldn't even bother to, you know... I think he was stoned. <laughs> I, I think he was high as a kite. I think he was smoking pot, and then and that's why he was thinking of Oreos. That's possible, too? <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what it was. I know if I had to go testify before Congress, I would probably... Uh, uh, have a little indica myself. Uh, well, and- remember, he's the one who thought that the, the pyramids were used to store grain. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I forgot about all the Ben Carson. The, the funny thing, I think it was just on MSNBC recently. Chris Hayes or someone played the clip of when uh, they were having that one Republican debate in 2016 where there was some sort of log jam backstage where everyone was confused oh, right. as to when they need to come out. And Ben Carson just 
froze like a deer in the headlights and he just yeah, right. couldn't I remember move. that yeah <laughs> that was hilarious Donald Trump's kind of looping his way around him and no one knows when it's time to go out and but I mean the, the Ben Carson aspect of that was the funniest because he was just not going to move he's just like an absence of any direction as to what I'm supposed to do next I am not going anywhere I'm staying right here backstage Oh, it's, it's this is one of the really bad things he's been doing. He's putting people like this in charge of agencies, yeah. and it's not—it's not even just the people in charge. I mean, he's replacing all kinds of levels of these agencies mm-hmm. with right-wing functionaries. Yeah, you know, pe- people who really don't care about what they're doing. <laughs> you well, they're—they're they're they, drow- they're drowning government in the bathtub. They're doing what Grover Norquist has always uh, sought to do, which is to right. you know to shrink government down small enough so that it both fits into someone's vagina and also can be drowned in the bathtub. <laughs> yeah. It, it's unfortunate, you know, and yeah. I don't know if Trump is doing this out of sheer incompetence or if he's being instructed to do it by, you know, whoever's behind him. But I mean, it's really striking to yeah. see the sheer incompetence of the people that he's putting in charge. Really terrible. Yeah, it's it's a little of both. I think it's it's born out of a lot of Trump ignorance where he felt like, "Why do I need? Why do I need all these people? What's the point? I, I just get rid of them and then we can save you know, a million dollars yeah. here or a million dollars there. It's a, him micromanaging. And, and, we don't and even not have a Secretary of Defense. No, we don't. And we're about to go to war in Iran, for God's sake. It's, it's insane. A land war in, land like war in Asia without a Secretary of Defense. This uh, what could possibly go wrong? You asked about, you know, being as old as I am. Oh, poor me. So old, but, <laughs> well, but, it's but, nice to but, say but, you don't seem that old. Well, what ha- I mean, f- one thing is this gives me a perspective because, mm-hmm. you know, I, I've been paying attention to politics for my whole life. Yeah. And I have never seen anything like this shit show. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah. It's, it's so bad. I mean, people who, who think this is in, in any way normal or acceptable, I, I will never understand that. I know. I know. I've been doing this for 30 years and I never thought it would come down to this. And my, my major concern is that. Uh, that once this Trumpism is out into the world, like the Ebola virus, it's very, very difficult to pull it back in. Yeah, uh, it's going to be very difficult to say, "All right, Trumpism is over," unless you, unless you do like uh, with the Night King or whatever, you stab the Night King and all the rest of the White Walkers go away. They all drop <laughs> yeah, to the wish. Book. Yeah, that, that would, would be, be great. Nice. Wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Victor totally. Orban and, yeah. and Marie Le Pen and all those people. Charlie just... Kirk and yeah. Candace Owens and this new breed <laughs> of whatever they are. These these kids who are. Just yeah. nothing but trolls. I mean, it's really become down. I mean, the entire conservative movement has come down to one thing, and that is tr- trolling. Uh, it's entirely yeah. driven by trolling, and it's led by the commander or the troll in chief in the White House. Oh man, it's pretty, pretty. It's we're in a bad place right now. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> is it is it kind of motivating you to uh, j- just drop it all and go back to session recording or something? <laughs> Yeah, well, it's occurred to me. me. <laughs> do you have? But, do you ever you know, have any inclination to go and just get a jam session going? Do you still do that? Do you still play? Um, I, I still play. I still work on music. Uh, you know, for myself. It's, yeah. Uh, it's really. Um, I'm kind of not into the whole. It's so much work. Yeah, it <laughs> you is. You know, so much physical work. Just mm-hmm. you know, even to do it, 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 it gets less and less attractive, and especially touring. Yeah. 
You know, it just, it's, it's I can't grueling. imagine touring. Yeah. <laughs> All those music videos about how shitty it is to be on tour. I, I completely sympathize with that. It would be awful oh, yeah. to like just disappear for six months and just hotel to hotel to hotel, hurry up and wait. Uh, you yeah. know, just maddening. It plays havoc with your, your life in general too, yep. you know, because you can't, keep friendships relationships fall apart all kinds mm -hmm. of stuff goes wrong because yeah. you're you're always gone and, and and also just you know it's very hard on you yeah. <laughs> physically you know especially if you're on one of those tours where you're you're doing five six seven gigs a week you know yeah. sometimes two in a day and you got to get on a bus and travel overnight and you got to try to sleep on the bus and mm -hmm. blah, blah blah and it's just you know it's just it's too hard. I don't really want to do that anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I did I did one teeny tiny little comedy show with the Sexy Liberal uh, Comedy Tour. And I, I went and I appeared at this event on stage and I was like the opening guy. And, and afterwards, uh, and it was just down the road in, in Washington, D.C. I didn't even have to fly anywhere. But just being on stage for that period of time, interacting with people, and then coming home, I felt like I ran a marathon. And it was just yeah. such a teeny tiny uh, taste of, of that lifestyle in, in, a, in, yeah. a, in a barely uh, applicable way. And I can't imagine doing that night after night where you're traveling and off and on, of, uh, off and on airplanes and... And uh, hotel rooms and just... Yeah. Ugh. Lately, I mean, you know, these days nobody goes on airplanes. Bands don't travel on airplanes because you can't take your gear. Oh, yeah, that's you right. Know, it's, it's literally, it's almost impossible to ship gear on planes nowadays. And if you mm -hmm. do it, it's it's really, really expensive. Why? Because so of people, uh, the, just the rates, the, the yeah. oh, luggage yeah. rates? Shipping rates are yeah. so high and, wow. you know, and... And but it's also you know people that these days they use buses and and semi trucks to yeah. keep all the gear you know because it's just a whole lot cheaper to mm -hmm. do it that way but it's much more hard on the people. Well, Charles, it was such a pleasure to uh, catch up with you again and and thank you for uh, running the show on Little Green Footballs carrying the episodes of the podcast over there. Well, thank it's, you, Bob. I'm so grateful for all of your uh, help on that front and. And uh, it's just, it's always great to catch up with you and and find that we're we're still tracking together for the most part. Yeah, and that's, I that's think so. Yeah, thing. yeah. I'm, just, <laughs> I'm, right, I'm glad to see that you're still doing this and and you're still strong on uh, on, on fighting Trump and, and making sure that your voice is out there because we absolutely need uh, you up on that wall as well as everyone else. So thank you for that. Uh, you bet, man. And thank you for the same thing. All right, we'll talk to you again real soon, my friend. All right, take it easy, Pope. We'll see you. Bye bye. Bye.